0: Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. I am Dr. Lee Warren, and I am really excited to bring you this episode of the Dr. Lee Warren Podcast. We're going to do a little self-brain surgery with an old friend of mine. Back on September 7th, I had an opportunity to sit down for an hour via Zoom with Max Lucado. Of course, he needs no introduction, but Max has sold literally hundreds of millions of books. He's probably the most successful living Christian author, maybe of all time, one of the most successful authors in the world at this current moment. Um, Max has written, I think, over 40 major books, plus a bunch of children's books and Bible studies, and he's just America's pastor, as he's been called by USA Today and other paper, other uh, newspapers he's prayed with and for presidents and world leaders. He's just an incredible, incredible Leader in the inspirational space, and and has always been a personal friend of Lisa and Tata and I. He was our pastor in San Antonio. Dennis worked side by side with him at the Oak Hills Church for years as the pastoral care minister there. And Max has been. Really important to me in my faith walk, not only through his writing, but through his friendship. He's one of the people I call when something hurts in my life. He's just been an incredible friend. And with this book, he not only gave us an endorsement, but he also offered to do this live one-hour event, and we had it back on September 7th. It hosted by the great people at Baker Bookhouse in Michigan and Waterbrook, the publisher, and we finally got the video. I told you I was going to be able to share that video with you, um, and they finally sent it to me. So I want to just strip the audio um, out of the video, and I want to give it to you here in case you listen to podcasts somewhere in the world where you can't get the video we're going to have the video available for you soon on my website. Um, we're working on that, and for some social media clips and all that. But here's the full length, uncut, hour long conversation between me and Max, hosted by Baker Bookhouse. You'll hear um, the Baker Bookhouse folks at the start of the episode, and I just wanted to put it in a convenient place for you, so you could hear this incredible hour. And I told you we're going to do a lot of neuroscience in season nine. In this conversation, we talk about your brain, how your brain processes trauma. We talk a lot about faith and doubt and how hope springs up in in the midst of all of that. And so this is going to be a good place for you to have a resource to hear uh, me, the surgeon, talking to Max, the pastor, and two guys who have known a lot of heartache and pain and how we find our faith in the midst of all those doubts. So there's really only one question. Hey, are you ready to change your life? is where we learn to become healthier, feel better, and be happier. This is where we leave the past behind and transform our minds. This is where we start today. Are you ready? This is your podcast. This is your place. This is your time, my friend. Let's get after it.
1: Well, good evening from beautiful Grand Rapids, Michigan. Welcome. I'm Dr. Bart Denny. I am the Nonfiction, Bible, and academic book buyer here at Baker Bookhouse. And on behalf of all of us here, thank you for joining us tonight for an evening of hope. It's an honor to introduce to you our distinguished panelists. Dr. Lee Warren and Max Lucato are here with us to discuss Lee's fabulous new book, Hope is the First Dose. Lee is a neurosurgeon and inventor and an Iraq War veteran who wrote about his experiences in his excellent book, Nowhere to Hide A Brain Surgeon's Long Journey Home from the Iraq War. And as a fellow Iraq War veteran and brother in Christ, Lee, I I just can't praise that book highly enough. I read it some years ago and uh, have loved it. Can't praise it enough. Lee plays the guitar. Loves to make connections between faith, science, and the realities of life. And Max Lucado needs almost no introduction. Max is a pastor, a speaker, and a best-selling author whose books have sold over 145 million copies in 50 languages. And in his writing, Max's passion for Jesus Christ and his love for people shines through. Uh, Max has brought encouragement to countless thousands of people over the years, including yours truly. And thank you for being here tonight, gentlemen. We surely do appreciate it. And again, uh, Dr. Lee Warren and Max the Plato are talking about Dr. Warren's newest book, Hope is the First Dose. And I know everyone here is looking forward as much as I am to this discussion, but uh, just a few notes of of housekeeping, we we do hope that you'll interact with each other in the chat room and that you'll encourage one another there. Uh, however, Lee will not be taking uh, questions from the chat room. In fact, when you registered for this event on Eventbrite, there was an opportunity to, for you to uh, ask a question beforehand. So after the book discussion, Lee will field as many of those pre-submitted questions as our time allows. And if you don't have your copy of Hope is the First Dose, you can find it on our website at bakerbookhouse.com. And for a limited time, a very limited time, just through this weekend, we're offering this tremendous book uh, for 30% off. Uh, That is the best price I could find anywhere online. And we can only hold that for a few days. But again, uh, that's bakerbookhouse.com and just search for Hope is the First Dose. And um, folks, before Lee and Max get started, would you mind joining me in a moment of prayer? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are truly grateful for this time together. Lord, we look forward to what you have laid on on Lee's heart. Uh, we pray that this discussion might bring uh, uh, encouragement and hope for those who need it. Uh, I pray that this discussion will help each of us to grow, Lord, in our daily walks with you. Most of all, Lord, I pray that this time together tonight serves to glorify you, Lord, and ultimately to point others to the greatest source of hope, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. And well, with that, Lee, I would love to hand it off to you and to Max, and we look forward to, again, what the Lord's laid on your heart tonight.
0: Thank you, Bart. We're so grateful to have the folks at Baker and Waterbrook supporting us tonight. Max, I'm so thankful for you, my friend. It's good to see you.
1: Good to see
2: you, Lee. You look terrific. Been too long. You look great. You
0: do, too. It's been a long time, and uh, hopefully we get to see you down in San Antonio soon.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm at the church office uh, right now. I know you're you're at home. And um, I um, had your book out this afternoon, uh, reading it for the second time. I'm so honored. Oh, my goodness. So honored to be one of the people who endorsed that book. But I got to tell you, I, I might need to get another one, because as I was walking down the hallway, as often is the case at, at a church building, I ran into somebody who had uh, been in a counseling session. And so we chatted and I said, how are you doing? And and it's not going too well. She's had a bit of trauma. And I said, well, I've got just the book for you. And I gave her my I got to get it back because I realized that was my signed copy. I know where (laughs) she lives. I can get it. But it's a great book. (laughs) It's a great book. And uh, I've I've been so happy to uh, endorse it, not just publicly, but personally uh, in in urging people. uh, Not only is it uh, full of insights, it's just beautifully written, just beautifully written. So well done, my friend.
0: Well, I want to just thank you for that, Max. Um, You know, it's you and I have had a few conversations over the years of of uh, the the idea of me having two sort of two careers, and and you were so kind. You can't figure
2: out what you want to do when you grow up, can you?
0: (laughs) When I finally grow up, maybe I just got out of the operating room. That's why I'm still wearing scrubs today.
2: I love it. Um, well, uh, and, and Bart mentioned that you're a guitar player. I was going to pull that one out myself because I, I remember some of the best conversations we had were back when you lived here in San Antonio and you you played on our on, in our praise band, and we would have visits either before, or after church, or at rehearsal. You're a, you're a really good guitar player.
0: Thank you. I remember uh, we did a song one night. Uh, I played it the first. Saturday night service that O'Kill's ever had, played lead guitar and and we actually sang one of my songs that night. It's kind of a kind of a rock and roll kind of song. And you came out and the first thing you said was, This ain't your grandma's church, people.
2: <laughs> yeah. We've never quite recovered from that, Lee. I'll I just don't say. think
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Max, I wanna I wanna tell you, you know, I, I think all of our children uh, were baptized at O'Kills church and and um all of them you know as they've grown up and it's been a long time since you've seen them but you knew mitch and uh, we're here tonight to talk about um some of the things that we've learned in our experience now over a decade of uh being bereaved parents which nobody ever wants uh to be but i just want to remind you and thank you in the days after mitch died um I got a package, a FedEx package from you, and it was a copy of your book. You'll get through this before it was even published. And that meant so much uh, to me and Lisa. And and I've just reached out to you over the years as a pastor and a friend. And so many times you've come alongside me when things were hurting and, and been there with a, a text or a, a phone call. And I just I'm really grateful for you and Dean in the way that you knew and loved Mitch, but the way that you've come alongside and, and pastored and befriended us over the years.
2: Well, it's, it's it's my joy. It's my joy. Uh, I love you guys. I love Lisa, your wonderful wife. Uh, she's a great, great friend and has a beautiful voice. And and of course, uh, at the risk of taking up all our time, letting people listen to how much you and I like each other. It, what people may not know is that your father-in-law, Dennis, uh, was one of uh, when I when I came to this church in 1988, Uh, we had three people on staff. I think he was number five or six. Dennis could tell us. And, uh, and he was just right down the hall from me. He was the equivalent of an executive pastor. He ran our business. But then what we found is that uh, though he did a fine job running the business, what, what really, uh, put the wind in his sails was when he would go visit someone in the hospital and he would come back just, uh, full of, insights and encouragement and what to say. And so it wasn't that long before he became our 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 chaplain. And uh I learned so much from your father-in-law. So please, and your mo- mother in law uh yeah. Patty, who who we cherish, who's in heaven. And uh but please give Dennis my love when you get the chance.
0: I will. He's listening right now, so I'm sure he heard you. And you spoke at Patty's funeral. So we have had a long history together, Max, and we're grateful Lot you.
2: A lot of cross paths, a lot of cross paths. And you've helped me, Lee. I don't know if you remember. uh, I wrote a book on anxiety, uh, Anxious for Nothing. And uh, I was really trying to get my mind around all this medical terminology about the amygdala. And I'd heard (laughs) people say things, and I didn't even know if I was pronouncing it correctly. And I said, "What am I doing, hitting, beating my head against the wall? I know a neurosurgeon." And I, so I don't know if you remember this, but I emailed you, and you gave me a thorough explanation. Uh, I probably owe you some royalties <laughs> because uh, you know you just helped me understand that and uh, and 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 the role that that the amygdala plays in anxiety. And so, yeah, you've you've been a, a, a go to guy for me and i appreciate it i hope i don't ever have to come to you for brain surgery but if i ever need it <laughs> i got your number
0: i hope not too i'm pretty <laughs> good at neurosurgery but i'm not that great at giving haircuts so you would be <laughs> a little trouble i appreciate that max you know we, i asked you if you would do this tonight because i thought it would be helpful for folks to to have a, a conversation between a pastor and a surgeon both of us walk alongside of a lot of people who are hurting and and of course a lot of times in my career I have to be the guy to deliver the bad news and and in your career you're the first people somebody calls often when something is happening and they're hurting and and so I thought it'd be an interesting conversation to have about hope and and the difference between hope and faith and hope and optimism and I thought you might have some questions for me about the science side of all these things and and then my world is is kind of a dual path between being a bereaved father and a surgeon who helps people in these hard times, and a guy who's been trying to figure out how to find the light again a few times in my life. And and so I just I couldn't think of anybody better to call than Max Lucado to say, hey, what do you think about having this conversation? I'm so grateful that you're here, and and why don't you just talk about yeah. some of that stuff for a minute, and then we'll chat yeah. about it.
2: Well, I'm 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 very grateful. Um, no one can talk about massive trauma better than someone who has gone through it like you have. And there is no more raw trauma than outliving your child. Yeah, I just just don't think there is. I think it's tragic when you bury your spouse. I think it's heartbreaking to bury your parent, Um, but to lose a child, Uh, It's just they're they're just they're just no words. There are simply no words. And even the word trauma seems weak uh, to to try to articulate what I imagine you must have gone through. Um, Lee. I think you you've done all of us a favor uh, by uh, exposing your heart, letting us feel your pain with you. Um, as you not only rem- inform remind me but inform most uh of of the passing of of Mitch and how you had to process that and your unique ability to to process it and help us understand what in the world is happening in our in our brains uh and how our mind as you call the software of the of the brain uh activates neurons and syntaxes and that that, that 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 we're not just going crazy we're not just going crazy yeah um so i i think if if i could ask you if i could pretend i'm interviewing you i think my first question to you would be uh was there a moment was there an event uh, in which you said I'm going to be able to breathe again you know was 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 there was there something I've heard you talk about hearing the promises of God I know that you uh, had a grandbaby born the same day you buried your yeah. son and so most of us know what the tunnel of trauma is we go in and we just, think we'll never get out of it but we do yeah. was there a time in which you turned to lisa or said to yourself you know uh there's some there's some light in the sky again
0: yeah you know th- i think there's there's two things that stand out one is as you mentioned we had Scarlett; it was our first granddaughter and there was this kind of a, a dual complexity to the to the tragedy this massive thing that we talked about because we were all planning on being in San Antonio on that Friday when we had Mitch's funeral instead. And our daughter, Katie was unable to come to be at her brother's funeral because Scarlett was coming. And, and so there was all this complex stuff where there was things that were supposed to be really happy that weren't happening and things that were, you know, supposed to be unifying family event of, of having a funeral that parts of our family weren't able to be at. So it was this big complex jumbled up mess. But I think, the fact that that light of a new life and a new member of our family came into the world on the same day that we were going through the hardest thing we'd ever gone through gave us uh, kind of a tangible reminder that there was still good out there. You know, one of the things that happens to people in trauma sometimes is they get into this this lie really that your brain tells you that this is it i'm done for now I'm, it's never going to be okay I'm. it can never move forward for the from this but we had this little baby that was you know had a whole life in front of her holding her in our arms and it was it, there was still something new to live for there was still some good out there and and so i think that was one thing it's just that god gave us that that timing of scarlet was was we, we knew that there was still purpose and meaning in our family we knew that all of us had had things to live for and to look forward to and and we just had this little this little person who reminded us of all of that. So that was part of it. And I think another part of it was from a scientist side, you know, I had this I constantly work in this kind of dual world between the things we believe and the things we know. I, read, I wrote a whole book about that uh in the past and and we were in the um Magnetic Resonance Imaging Research Center a few weeks after Mitch died when we first went back to our office. And uh, our office was in this uh, place at the Auburn University campus where we there was a lot of research going on in the brain imaging of what happens when you think about certain things. And and for the first time, we Lisa and I were able to watch an experiment happen where the researchers were asking people to think about certain things that made them sad or think about things that made them happy. And we could see it on the screen. What was happening inside these people's brains when they changed the things that they thought about? And the researcher would say, okay, think about the worst day you've ever had in your life. And you could see what parts of the brain would activate and where the blood flow was happening. And then they would say, okay, now think about the best thing that's ever happened in your whole life. The happiest memory that you have. And the brain would come alive with all these different lights and, and blood flow is changing. And and Lisa tied that to the idea of what Paul was talking about in Philippians four, which you wrote a whole book about. And, and she said, these people change their brains by changing what they were thinking about. And to hmm. me, it, it, it reminded me that God has given us all this this hardware to, to to take command of the things that we think and feel and we can change it by deciding to obey him and believe his promises are real because he says I do have good things yet in store for you. This is not the end for you. And no matter what you're going through, there, there's a possibility of hope and, and a future for you. That's what Jeremiah 29 is about. And so we, you know, I think it satisfied that science piece in me to actually see it with my own eyes that these people changed their minds and that's how they were able to change their life. It's it's self-brain surgery. And that kind of yeah. that did something to me as the scientist. Like I had the I had the dad part and the grandfather part, and then I had the the science part and then my, my spirit just started coming alive with the possibility that I could feel something like hope or happiness again
2: mm. it, it's not easy though is it Lee it's not mm. it, it it takes sometimes it takes everything we've got just to defy despair, much less pursue hope it, oh, it, it, you it it those shadows they can they can come really really quickly. Can you talk for just a minute about uh, the difference between fact and feeling and how feelings cannot be trusted? I think we've talked about this before. And so I'm hoping you're nodding your head because, you know, I'm kind of luring you into it. I think it's a fascinating conversation.
0: Well, I think that it, if we zoom out from this conversation a little bit and just look at our society right now, I mean, we're, we're living in a society that tells people that what you feel should be pursued and, and almost worshiped. Like, like if you feel it, you go get it, you know, take it. And so we have a cultural part of that. Um, but from the neuroscience side, it's very clear. The things you feel are not facts. They are chemical events in your brain. So when you feel okay. fear, for example, your your brain can tell you that you ought to be afraid Even if there's nothing that you really ought to be afraid about. A good example of that is if you open a drawer in your house in San Antonio and there's a rattlesnake in there, the brain is going to tell you to be afraid because there's something really to be afraid of. But that same set of chemical triggers, Max, happen if you hear a noise in the middle of the night and your brain says, oh, there's a killer in my house that's going to murder me. You feel the same thing that you felt when that rattlesnake was there because the same chemicals trigger that event. And it's a limited palette of neurotransmitters that make you feel the things that you feel. But the truth is feelings aren't facts. They're just triggers that point us towards something that may or may not be true. And so understanding that is the first step to saying, yes, I feel this set of things, but I can take command of my brain and I can tell my brain to take charge of those feelings and I can turn those thoughts around and my brain will reliably your, your brain will reliably produce different chemicals if you tell it different things to think about and so mm. that's a that's a critical piece of understanding the trauma response and understanding grief and and, and anxiety and all of these things is just to understand that just because you feel it doesn't mean it's true and you can change how you feel by changing what you do mm.
2: There's there's something there's something too uh, the apostle Paul's admonition then isn't there take every thought captive yep. take every thought captive like yep, a man told once, 10, 5. He said yeah he said just because you have a thought you don't have to think it that's right that's a great quote isn't it just yeah because it's your you quote thought, <laughs> <laughs> you do that one in the book but that that's all uh, thought management. Thought management, you know, uh, and and this is this is a bit of a new idea for many people, and that is when you have these thoughts swirling around in your head, take them captive, and and take them before, uh, you know, the apostle says, take every thought captive and present it before the throne room, and so right. we take that thought and we present it before Jesus, and and we can a practical practice of this, Lee, that I've found is is we talk to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I'm having this thought of despair right now. Uh, I've just buried somebody I love more than life and I haven't seen sunshine. And I feel like I'll never, I'll never, ever be happy again. That's how I feel. But Lord Jesus, is that true? Is that true? See, what we're in pursuit of is truth. Jesus said, it's the truth that will set you free. And so the truth is, according to the Bible, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So in a moment like that, equipped with a few statements of truth, uh, you you choose. You say, "Okay, I I don't feel like I'm ever going to be happy again. I don't. Mm -hmm. And can I quickly say, if that's you, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself you cut yourself some slack. But see if you can't give ear to the truth, because that's what truly will um, set you free. It, it may take forever. It really may take a long time, or it could be tomorrow. You just don't know. But what you don't want to do rightly is it's just cave in to that despair.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. You know, we we teach this uh, this thing. It sounds silly, but we talk about this bad thought biopsy. Like, you know, I think about when I when I take care of somebody. If you come to my office and you tell me I've been having these headaches, and I say, "Well, let's go to the operating room and I'll open your head up and <laughs> see if I can find a tumor in there," you would say, "Hey, time out! <laughs> don't you want to do a scan?" Yeah, I think or, I won't win? call
2: you, Lee. I think I won't. Uh, yeah. You'd say, well,
0: let's get some data before we take action on this thought, right? Because that might not be the right diagnosis, and I might not apply the right treatment if I don't get some facts first. And so we teach this idea of biopsying those thoughts. That's what Paul's talking about in biblical terms in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, of taking every thought captive. But the thing about doing a biopsy is though, is that when you once you grab that thought and you just put a little a little space in between the feeling or the stimulus and the response that you take, and once you grab that thought and critically examine it, then you can ask yourself three questions of it. And the first question is, like you said, is this thought true? And sometimes it is true. I mean, it's when you lose somebody, especially you say, I'm I'm never gonna feel anything other than sad about losing my son. That's true. But the next thought might be, well, that means my life has no more purpose, and that's Mm -hmm. not true, and so you you take the first thought, and if it is true, then your second question is, is that thought compassionate, or is it it at least unharmful to me, and if it's not a compassionate or, or unharmful thought, then I need to direct what my next step is, so you can have a true thought, but then you decide what to do with it, and turn it into something more helpful to you. And the third thing can be, is it is it, un, is it is this thought harmful to me? Is it untrue and harmful? And if it is, then you need to replace it. You need to do some kind of radical thought transplant and let God put something more hopeful and helpful in there for you. So I, I've learned to, to sort of take command of that first thought because five to one, we, we know from the neuroscience side that about five to one, your thoughts are biased towards negativity. And that's just
2: that's that, true. That is amazing to me. I've heard you say that before. Did I read that in the book, too? Yeah. Or did I hear that in one of your interviews? En- I think that's worth underlining. I, I wish we could pull out a, a highlighter and highlight our screen. <laughs> yep. Five to one. Five to one. So one out of every five, only one out of every five thoughts I have are really worth worth thinking.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true in general terms. And the reason for it is is God wired us to protect us. So when you're a baby and you touch a hot stove the first time, you make a very powerful synapse in your brain that says that thing is going to hurt me if I touch it again. And so then for the rest of your life, when you when you see a stove. You know not to touch it without having to think about it. You see the hot curling iron, you know you ought not to touch it because it's going to burn you. But the problem is that we have a lot of things that make us feel that same set of chemical transmitters that feel like pain. And so we'll say, wow, you know, somebody broke my heart one time, so I can't get close to somebody because I'm going to feel that same thing if I do, and it's going to hurt me again. And so we have all these, these synapses that fire based on prior experiences that aren't necessarily true in the current moment. And that can be really harmful in the post-trauma, post-massive thing phase because you start feeling all these things that remind you of what you felt when you lost that person. Or when I went through in the Iraq war, I had a lot of those triggers when I got home of things that made me feel like I was getting mortared when I wasn't getting mortared. And then you, if you get stuck in that feeling, then you get can get stuck in rumination or in shame or regret or all these what ifs and, and you can't move forward in your life.
2: How do you, how do you move forward? How do you, how do you take that memory and, uh, and the false triggers that, uh, subsequent events have? How how do you rewire that?
0: I think the first thing is to To be aware of what's happening in your brain. There's some fascinating research that's been published recently. Mary Frances O'Connor, who's going to be on my podcast pretty soon, um, did some brain imaging research of these people that go through what we call complex grief. Um, complex grief is about 10% of people that have gone through some major trauma or major loss and they get stuck there and they and they just can't move forward. They're they're stuck in rumination, they're stuck in guilt and thoughts of the past. And the brain imaging has shown that there's an area of the brain called the it's a long word, sub the subgenuate anterior cingulate cortex. So we'll call it the cingulate. And that part of the brain is right in the middle, and it's it's like a big switch yard, almost like a gear shift in your car, Max. And it, and it gets stuck in neutral sometimes when you've had major trauma. And it's like taking the gear shift in your car and putting it in neutral. And no matter how much you push on the gas pedal, that car's not going anywhere because it's stuck in neutral. And so the cingulate, if you can re-engage your cingulate gyrus, then you're going to be able to say, okay, yes, I'm hurting. Yes, I miss that person. Yes, I feel devastated. But I need to re-engage my brain and let myself move forward. And you do that by remembering that this isn't the first hard thing that you or other people have been through and that other people have made it forward in their lives. And you have too in the past. And so there's possibility of moving through that hard thing because other people have done it. And that's why I love the Lamentations so much. You know, the guy in the guy in Lamentations is, is remembering all these horrible things that are going on And he decides to take action. He says that I'm going to move towards hope. I take hope. I grab hope. Hope is a verb. It's an action word. And I see it as that shifting the gear and making that cingulate gyrus do its job again and getting me moving forward again. So I think just, just knowing that parts of your brain are going to tend to be immobile and stuck when you're going through hard things. And then remembering that it is possible to motivate them to move forward by thinking about different things. And that also happens when you move your body physically. So when you're when you're feeling stuck and you're feeling depressed and you're feeling like you can't do anything, that's a good time to take a walk or make yeah. a phone call or yeah. read your Bible or do something because your brain can't really multitask. It's just really good at switching back and forth really fast. And wow. so when you do something else, you generate positive neurotransmitters and you'll start building rewards around that. And you'll start making new synapses that will help you switch and drive forward out of that hole.
2: You're basically creating new thought habits, right?
0: That's right. You're
2: creating, a, a, we, we tend to have bad habits when it comes to thinking. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I, I see people struggling with a lot is spiraling. You know, yeah. this is bad. Now this is bad. This is bad. Now this is bad. And it's a habit. It's a thought process. So something bad happens and so you assume something else is going to happen and that reminds you of something else and then you get ticked off at so and so and then you wish we had a different president and then you think you're you know we're potty trained too early and it's a <laughs> downward it's a downward spiral so what you're talking about is is developing a new way of thinking and i think what the apostle paul said let let your mind be transformed is that correct? Yeah. Am I? Yep. Romans, Romans 12. 12. 12. Yep. Yeah. And, 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 and so the Holy Spirit will help us have a new way of thinking. You you talked about lamentations. It made me think about the psalmist who said, I lift up my eyes. Yep, Whence comes my hope? And I think there's something physical there. You know, he the psalmist could keep focus down, but the psalmist says, no, I'm going to lift up my eyes from whence comes my hope, my help. And it's almost like a victorious or fist clench or a punch of the air. My hope, my hope comes from the Lord. And so it's a conscious choice. Uh, I have a good friend. He's a well-known, I won't say his name. I don't have permission to do so, but he he lost a son. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he said that for about, I want to say 30 days, they kept praise music going in their house nonstop, twenty-four hours. They just put a praise station on, and uh, let Christian music and praise music, so that it would always be uh, sowing seeds of hope. Uh, you know, to counterbalance the the challenge of despair. And so, what you're describing here, Lee, I think is just powerful, powerful. Well,
0: I. You know, I think it's really important to say this at this juncture in our conversation. Like, if you're hearing us and you are dealing with serious anxiety or serious depression and you really can't move forward and you're trying, don't forget that sometimes you need a a doctor and sometimes you need a therapist and sometimes you need medicine. And there are times when you need professional help. So don't don't hear us. Don't think that we're saying there's no role for that. I'm I'm not saying that at all. But there's a. tremendous amount of positive movement that you can make in your own life by these techniques and things that Max and I are talking about. Tremendous amount of power in remembering that you've come through hard things before. There's a tremendous amount of power in recounting God's promises and looking for ways that they've turned out to be true before because they will turn out to be true again. And I saw, you know, we had this this day that Lisa and I came to to think about the fact that do we really believe that we get to see Mitch again? Do we really believe that? Because as Paul talked about, I can't can't think about where he said it right now. Maybe First Corinthians fifteen, where he says, um, "If there's no resurrection, then we are above all people most to be pitied." Right? Yeah. He's if we're we're living our lives and it's not even true, then that's just pitiful, right? So we had to come to believe that because for for me, I started thinking, "Gosh, if I don't get to see him again." Then what is life really? I mean, is life really have a meaning and a purpose or is it just you live out your days and then it's all over? Like I needed to believe that he was alive and I would get to see him again. And that became this real thing for me. I understood how why people feel that way. And so I started saying, well, if that promise is true and I need it to be true, then all these other promises have to be true, too, because the Bible says that God can't lie and that every scripture is true. And so then when he says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, that needs to be true, too. And all of a sudden I started seeing it. I would have the worst day ever and you would send me a text or I would open up my mail and there was a book from Max Lucado in the mailbox or, or Lisa would walk in the room right at the worst moment or one of our kids would call or God was just showing up and being kind to us in different ways. And so then that day was a little bit better because he was kind and close to the brokenhearted, right? And then when you feel all alone and I felt like nobody understands and and maybe even God doesn't care about me anymore, I would open up my Bible and I would find the Lord longs to be gracious to you, Lee. He will rise to show you compassionately. He'll get up out of his chair, Max, to to come yeah. and be nice to you when you're hurting. Like he, and And I would just start finding those words and and they started coming true, and over time the light just started kind of coming uh, on again, and it got a little bit brighter. And it and it's this this kind of dual, I call it quantum physics thing, because in the quantum physics world, more than one thing can be true at the same time, which is, is hard to understand, but the math is true that that God can say something like Jesus can say in John sixteen thirty three, this world's going to give you trouble, like you're going to have a hard time in this world, and He can also say in John ten ten. I came to give you an abundant life. And both of those things can be true at the same time. And that's how we can make it through. Because when it's all hard, you need to know that it's also still good, that there's still good stuff out there.
2: When you um, think of hope and compare that with optimism, biblical hope, as opposed to. I don't know, secular optimism or just the optimism. Can, can you unpack those two concepts it, from your from your viewpoint?
0: I think so. You know, there's a lot of science around. There's a lot of research around hope and and the difference between hope and optimism. And, and actually, from a secular scientific point of view, some people say optimism is better than hope, but I think that's not true. I, th- I think it turns out to not be true. Optimism is this and. and sort of secular hope and optimism, I kind of put those together, um, is this idea of hoping for a particular thing to be true or to come true or to come to pass, right? That, that if this happens, I'll be happy, or if that happens, I'll be okay, or I'm, I'm going to make it as long as this set of circumstances occurs. And that, and you can be a generally optimistic person and sort of be always willing to say, hey, it's going to be okay, or that's going to work out for me. And you can have all that, but it may or may not turn out to be realistic, and then when when you lose the thing that you thought you had to have in order to be helpful, then if that's what you built your hope on, then you turn out to be hopeless. And hopelessness turns out to be the most dangerous thing anybody can have. It's way more dangerous than cancer. Hopelessness is the deadliest disease that people can encounter. But biblical hope, Max, isn't something, is not hope for something, it's hope in someone. And so if, if Jesus really did pay for my sins and he really did die and he really did overcome death and he rose up again, then that means I can believe that he's going to do that for me too. And so mm. I think that, you know, some people say, what's the difference between faith and hope? And I, I think it's the, the easiest way for me to say it is faith is the belief that God can do anything he says he can do. And hope is the knowledge or the belief that he'll do those things for me. And mm. and so will he do it for me? And and I believe that he will. And so Jesus lived this life, and he did the things that he did, and he overcame death, hell, and the grave. And because of that, that's Mm -hmm. why I know Mitch is alive. And that's why I know Patty's alive. And that's why Mm -hmm. I know I'll get to see him again, because hope really is a hope in someone and the things that he's done for us. And Mm so I think that's the biggest difference is if your hope is based on something that you could find out isn't true or that could be taken from you, then you're really in a dangerous place. you're in a very dangerous place if you're life's happiness and meaning and purpose depends on a circumstance that could change or a person that could die or an amount of money that could become less because of inflation or something else if your hope is in something that cannot be taken from you then it can really be bulletproof and that's what we learned you know after we lost Mitch, that we dipped down for a while and we were doubtful and we were hurting but it turned out that the bottom of all those emotional holes held and the bottom was He's really true, and he's really real. And I'll give you one more. You know, this is a long answer to your question, but people say all kinds of weird things to you after you go through major trauma and Maybe you lose somebody. People say, the well-meaning Christians say, Romans 8, 28, at your son's funeral, you know, God's going to work this out for good somehow. And most of the time, you want to punch them when they say things like that. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. So it's not a good thing to say right after somebody dies. But I'll tell you something that's weird, Max. Over the 10 years since we lost Mitch, two different times I've gotten emails from people who said, hey, Dr. Warren, I was going to kill myself today until I listened to your podcast or until I read that email that you sent out. And I feel a little hopeful and I'm not going to do that now. And so because I started writing and podcasting and doing all these things out of the pain of losing my son, a couple of people have lived that might have died And that's a good thing. So here we are back to quantum physics. So it's never going to be good that Mitch died. It's never going to be okay. It's never going to stop hurting. But good has come out of us being faithful and moving forward towards those promises and and deciding that other people could be helped by learning some of the things that we've learned along the way. And that's why we do all these things. And so Romans 8, 28 turns out to be true, that, that good things can come. God can work good stuff out of any soil that your that your life is tilling if you'll just hold in there and hang in there long enough it takes time and it takes years sometimes but you'll start seeing that even that hard one to swallow can turn out to be true
2: don't waste your sorrows in other words that's right so would you say then that a person who has gone through a trauma whether they wanted to or not has been enrolled in a particular school of suffering. Yes. And some, some graduate with postgraduate degrees in the school of suffering, which mm-hmm. qualifies you to do something that somebody is going to need. You know, you and Lisa and your family can do what a thousand of us pastors cannot do. You can sit Next to somebody who has just bid farewell to a child they love more than life itself. You can sit down on the couch next to them and say, I know how you feel. I know how you feel. As a pastor, I say, I, I might say, I can't imagine how you feel, or I try to imagine, but I, I've not been there. But because of your particular struggle, uh, you, you can. And you can then, with the same comfort God gave you, you can begin extending that comfort to other people. And what I'm hearing you say is that though you would you would give anything to not go through it, but you're discovering some purpose in it and that God can use it. And that, that buoys you and helps you go through it. Am, am I hearing you correctly?
0: It's exactly right. I mean, that school of suffering. I, I remember this Isaiah 48, 10. He says, see, I have refined you, not yeah. like silver is refined, but I've refined you in the furnace of suffering. And, and mm. for me, I, I remember talking to God about that verse as I read it. And I was like, I don't feel like you're refining me. I feel like you're cooking me. I feel like mm. I'm being burned up. And, and I came to this crossroads where I had to say, okay, God is telling me that this fire can turn me into something better than I was before. He can burn something out of me. And and I, I'm not saying he put me in the furnace for that purpose, but I ended up there and he can turn it around and he can burn something into my life that will be powerful and meaningful. And I remember another surgeon came up to me shortly after Mitch died and he was not a friend. It's a guy that I knew who was another surgeon and he, he was one of these kind of, um, I don't really know what the word is, jock. He was kind of one of these big kind of burly sports guys, you know, orthopedic surgeon. And we never really had talked. And he he walked right up to me, Max, and he put his hands on my shoulders and he braced me the first time he saw me. And he said, Lee, I don't know what to say to you, but I know this. I know your son wouldn't want his death to cause you to die, too. Mm. He said, don't let it have a 200 percent mortality rate because your son mm. would want you to make something out of your life that would honor him. And he just walked off. Like that was the, that was the most important thing anybody said to me after Mitch died is don't let his death kill you too. And, And I think that that comes into the context of this school of suffering idea in this, that Mitchell would want his dad to tell a story with my life that honors him. And so his life means something beyond that. It just wiped me out. And so in the context of my relationship with him, his life still has all kinds of meaning and purpose because I'm using what I learned from him and from even my experience of losing him to try to to try to help somebody else find that context. Viktor Frankl said that um, famous line that he said, suffering stops feeling like suffering when you give it purpose. Mm. And that's what I think the school of suffering is all about.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think we've talked about my father and my dad died of Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. We were serving in South America at the time. We were in Brazil. And um, I had volunteered to my father when he was diagnosed with ALS. Uh, I had volunteered not to move to South America. And my dad wrote me a letter that I'll treasure uh, to the end of my life. And in one of the lines, he said, go, please God. I have no fear of death or eternity. Now, my dad wasn't a theologian. He was a mechanic. He made his living in the oil fields of West Texas. But he had landed on a faith that enabled him to weather that trauma. It was horrible. I mean, it was two years of horror. You know what ALS does to a body. And here's a robust mechanic in his early 60s, who was hoping to pull a camper trailer around the US in his retirement. And all that was taken from him. But he said, I have no fear of death or eternity. And even that though, wasn't quite enough for me. I think I was struggling with it, Lee, more than my dad was. But there was a moment, uh, some month or so after my dad died, that I received a letter from a friend of my father's I didn't know him well but they worked together uh, as mechanics and this friend uh, wrote me and he said I would visit your father every week uh, and he watched my father you know digress into a wheelchair into a bed in onto a breathing machine he, he watched that digression And he came to the funeral, and I remember meeting him, but I didn't know him well. But he said, I watched your father suffer with dignity. He never complained. And I decided that what Christ did for him, Christ could do for me. And I became a Christian at the funeral. Wow. Now, Lee, that didn't surprise me that somebody would respond to my dad that way because daddy really did suffer with dignity. But what I needed to hear, I needed to hear that my father's passing had an eternal impact, eternal impact, not temporal, but, but literally changed a person's eternal mailing address. Wow. And, 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 and I just needed to say, okay, there was a significance in that. God was using even that tragedy to, uh, to reach to reach someone's life. And, of course, the ultimate expression of that is the death of Jesus on the cross. Yeah. Take a human being, place him at the foot of the cross on the day Christ died, and they'll say, well, there's no purpose in this, no meaning in this. This is, this is horrible. Here's a man being butchered and slaughtered and stripped and whipped and crucified. There's no good in this. But man, here we are still talking, you know. That's Three right. days later, Jesus vacated the grave and we re- realize that he did it for us. And the greatest display of love was in the most atrocious murder that the world has ever seen. And mm-hmm. so that's this is that. But what you're talking about, how, how, how something can be, can be horrible. Can I use the word beautiful, you know, horrible, but also we can find beauty in it. We don't dismiss. We don't dismiss. We don't pretend. We don't suppress just the opposite. We, we elevate the pain. We present it before God, but then we say, Lord, help me to find the beauty in this and help me to find the meaning behind it. Wow.
0: I think it's it's exactly the right point, and I think one nuance of that that we need to say for the people listening who are hurting over something, Jesus rose from the dead after that beautiful, horrible, cruel thing, and he came back with his wounds, okay? This is really important, friend, all you listening. Jesus didn't come back with his wounds all healed up, and the reason he didn't is because Thomas needed to see them. Mm. Jesus said to Thomas, you want to know who I am? You put your hand in my wound and you'll know who I am. And that's what we have to do is live in this life with our wounds visible because my friend Jarrett Stevens, who's the pastor at um, Champion Forest Baptist Church in, in Houston, says scars tell better stories than trophies do. It's mm. exactly right. People need to see your wounds. And thank you for sharing that incredible story. You know, Max, we got, we had about 10 minutes left. And there, there are two questions that people wrote in. Just hundreds of you wrote in beautiful questions. but There are two that I thought we needed a pastor's touch on. And the first one is a woman named Tamara wrote in, Max, and said this. How do you deal with the guilt of losing a child? My son, Kenny, at age 20, passed away from suicide five years ago. And I struggle with guilt and the things I should have daily. Max, how do you, as a pastor, how do you address that? The the parental guilt of a child's suicide. That's just devastating.
2: I think, first of all, um, what was her name again? Tamara. Tamara. Tamara, if you were right here with me in my office, um, I would say, can you be kind to yourself? Don't feel bad for feeling bad. Yeah. Okay. Just don't. Just don't. Give yourself permission. And don't put yourself on a clock. You say it's been five years. You may have placed an expectation on yourself that, well, after five years, I should be over this, or somebody may have said that to you. We all heal at a different pace. And so be kind to yourself. Take a deep breath. Yep. And um, and then secondly, um, uh, I have um, I tell about J.J. Uh, Jasper in one of my books, uh, and he lost a child, and he had to call. You had to do this too, Lee. He had to call the siblings. Uh, the yeah. little fellow was was killed in a I think it was a four wheeler that flipped over. Little mm. youngster, single age. I can't remember the age, but he had. So J.J. called the the siblings, and he said as he called them, I think there were four of them. He said, I want you to think about all the good you know about God. Before I give you this news. There's some wisdom in that. Yeah. So, Tamara, think about the good you know about God. He still loves you. He still cares. He's watching over you. He's going to get you through this. Don't give up. So hang on to the good. And then, lastly, I think what we've been saying is really helpful here. What's feeling and what's fact yeah you know you you didn't make that happen you did not make that happen and that's not a message from god when you have that thought so you need to please take that thought captive present it before the throne room of christ to say god is this true is this true no it's not true it happened it's horrible if you could do anything to have prevented it you would have but you've got to move out of this feeling of, 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 of guilt. You've got to be kind to yourself and begin responding. Break out of this cycle, this downward spiral. Just kind of push out of it and say, okay, gum it, gum it. I'm not going to let that thought hold sway over me. Sweet. And the more you do it, the more you'll create that faith thought habit that we've been talking about. It's not going to come overnight, Sweet. but it will come. It will come. Lee? That's exactly
0: right. I have nothing to add. That was a perfect answer. And I needed we needed some pastoral wisdom on that. And Max, the, the other question is just equally devastating. A woman named Sherry. My faith has been shaken. My 10 year old granddaughter, Jalen, passed away in May from glioblastoma, brain cancer. Such a tragic loss for me and our family. Here's the question. How do we go on?
2: I, again, if you were here in my office, I would not give you a quick answer. I would want to hear more. I would yeah. want to hear more about how this hurts, how it makes you feel. And so based on that, we might go two or three different directions. I quite likely would invite you to consider <clears throat> a couple of scriptures. So one of which is the words of the Apostle Paul, that this brief and momentary struggle is not worth comparing with the glory that outweighs them all, and that passage can come across a bit trite because I'm not saying that you what you feel is brief or momentary, but I think what the apostle Paul was saying there is in comparison to eternity, and the eternity that uh, Lee will have with Mitch and you will have with your granddaughter, there it. It, it, can we put eternal perspective here? I wanted more time with my dad. I sure did. He And, and everybody on this call, I imagine, has somebody that, that they would say uh, got taken too soon. I get that. And I hear that in comparison with eternity. <laughs> I think my dad, who's probably in that great host of witnesses, Mitch and the your granddaughter, would say, yeah. you know what, I'm okay, I'm okay, you stay faithful, because it's brief and momentary, and joy right. a vapor, and we're going to be home in, the, in with them, and in the presence of Jesus, I do not mean to downplay, I would not get to that point in the conversation quickly, you know, only if you allowed me that permission, because I, you got to grieve, you got to grieve it out, but Amen. you can't grieve like those who have no hope, because That's we right. have that,
0: that's right. Thank you so much, Max. And you know, a couple couple more things. We're almost out of time, and I want to respect your time. You've been so gracious. Max has taken a night tonight with us less than a week before his own book launch. You've got a brand new book coming out, Max. And hey, just tell us just a second about your new book. I'm so excited about it. I don't have a copy yet, but I've already ordered it. So tell us about your new book.
2: Well, I just happened to have a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Now I am excited about this. This is called God Never Gives Up On You. And it's and it's a conversation about the one of the most fascinating people in scripture, Jacob. Jacob. You know, he, he was a scoundrel. I mean, the yep. guy was a scoundrel. He seemed to be running from God uh more than he was running toward God. So if you got it all together and you're always running toward God, this book's not for you. But if you've got a few more downs than you do ups, you might learn something and benefit from how God was faithful. The hero in the Jacob story is not Jacob. The hero is God.
0: Amen. You know, it, it's amazing to me that you've been doing this for as long as you've been doing it. I've, I've written three books, and it's like it's like people say it's like having a baby. I can't say that. I'm not a woman. But it's, it's certainly a labor of love, and it's difficult. And, friends, I would encourage you— um, Hope is the First Dose has a bunch of stuff in it that we didn't cover tonight that will be helpful to you if you're hurting. Max's books always do that for me. Um, He's the one guy that I can say without question I read everything you write. And it just means so much to me. And Max, I just it would mean the world if you would just leave us tonight with a word of prayer. And I'm just so grateful for you and Dean Lynn and the work that you're doing and the help that you've been to me in my life. And and for your time tonight, thank you so much. You really helped me to put some words on hope.
2: It's my honor. It's my honor. And thank you, Lee. Uh, Not only does this book contain uh, amazing wisdom, it's just beautifully written. Just beautifully written. I don't get why some people can be brilliant surgeons, great writers, and play the guitar. Could you not just give me one of those? (laughs) (laughs) Lord, we thank you for this time. We do. I thank you for Lee. I thank you for Lisa. I thank you for Dennis and uh, I thank you for Patty and for all these dear ones. We thank you for Mitch and and pray just a blessing over his memory and continued help and strength for the fam- the Warren family. and all these who have been kind to to lend in uh, an hour of listening and thought. We, we pray for them. We know that you hear everybody's concerns. And we pray for strength and faith. Help us to be strong in these very, very difficult and dark days. We pray for those who are lonely, who are depressed. We pray that if anybody's considering uh, suicide, that you'd urge them, call them back, call them into hope. And that, Heavenly Father, you would would hear the prayers that are being offered. We thank you uh, for the empty tomb. We thank you for the promise of heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Max. And friends all over the world, I noticed there's at least five countries represented here in the folks listening. We're so grateful that you spent an hour of your time with us. And, And remember that whatever you're going through, God has a plan and a purpose, and you can give it meaning and purpose. It won't feel as much like suffering. And there is a plan. There's always a plan. You can change your life by changing your mind. And hope is the first dose. So shameless plug for the book. And I'm so grateful that you spent some time with me and Max tonight. Max, love you. Thank you so much, brother.
2: Love you too, Lee. See you soon. Yes,
0: sir. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. The Dr. Lee Warren Podcast is brought to you by my brand new book, Hope is the First Dose. It's a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. It's available everywhere books are sold. And I narrated the audio book, If You're Not Already Tired. Hearing my voice. Hey, the theme music for the show is "Get Up" by my friend Tommy Walker. Available for free at TommyWalkerMinistries.org. They are supplying worship resources for worshipers all over the world to worship the Most High God. And if you're interested in learning more, check out Tommy Walker Ministries. Org. If you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer, wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer, and go to my website and sign up for the newsletter, Self-Brain Surgery, every Sunday since 2014, helping people in all 50 states and 60-plus countries around the world. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'll talk to you soon. Remember, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today.